What is the most important question of them all? The one question, the keystone, the master key that unlocks the doors? Here's a nomination, if not for the question, then certainly for one of the most important questions, the ones that sit at the heart of things. The question is this, what is love? How should we understand it, practice it, live it out? It sounds pretty basic when you put it that way, but that's the point. It is basic. It goes right down to the bedrock. Here's what I mean. You might think that the most important question, especially for people involved with Christianity, would be something to do with God, right? But the Bible's library contains a famous letter from someone named John who declares that God is love. And that if you don't understand love and practice it, you'll never have anything to do with God. And again, when Jesus is asked to sum up his teachings in a sentence or two, he answers by turning to love, right? First, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy, calling us to love God with everything we have and everything we do. And then he quotes from the book of Leviticus, calling us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And at Christmas, too, the whole reason for Christmas in the first place, the rationale for God coming to dwell among us, to live and die and rise, according to the Gospel of John, is because God so loved the world. So, we can't understand who God is, or Jesus' teachings, or Christmas itself, without a pretty good working definition of love. And there's reason to doubt whether we have one. I mean, the word is everywhere. We use it all the time. We say we love our family members, we love our friends, we love our romantic partners. We love activities and places and things. We love our phones and favorite celebrities and shows on Netflix. The word love is everywhere, but its ubiquity waters it down or mashes it up with all kinds of positive feelings until we end up with a vague sense that love means being positively disposed towards something? That's pretty thin broth, especially when we consider how important the word is in the history of human thought and life, how pivotal it is, how consequential. And so that makes the question, what is love? one of the most important questions we can ask. So, to conclude this series on the poetry of Christmas, we're going to ask that pivotal, fuzzy, all-important question, what is love? And how can the great poets of love, the likes of Mary Oliver and E.E. E. Cummings, help us understand it, practice it, and live it out? I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. One starting point for understanding love is to think of it as a kind of caregiving, that to love someone is to care for them to care what happens to them, and also to take care of them, to provide for at least some of their needs. And that's a great foundation to build on, but it's just that, a foundation. 
through the ages, most of the best thinking about love affirms that it's a kind of care, it can't be less than that, but it also is considerably more. One stream of tradition emphasizes the ardent warmth and intensity of love, even going so far as to underscore its erotic dimension. For some, the most surprising book in the Bible's library is the Song of Solomon, which is essentially an ancient erotic love poem, thousands of years old, which has been traditionally read as an allegory, a model for thinking about and experiencing the love between God and humanity. Not that God has a crush on you, that's not quite the point, but rather that the love God has for you and the love God invites from you is profound and devoted and joyful. That's the key. It's ecstatic, a divine form of ecstasy. And so, across many of the world's religions, you can find love poems that can be read as human love for another human being, and can also be read, on another level, as divine love for humanity and human love for God. E. E. Cummings, the son of a pastor and a poetic theologian in his own right, surely had this ancient tradition in mind when he wrote many of his love poems. Take Love is More Thicker Than Forget, for example, where he mind-bendingly compares love to a sea deeper than the sea and a sky higher than the sky. It's like a pole vaulter using language to help lift us up and over the conventional definitions of things, over the top, you know, into a sky higher than the sky. Likewise, in I carry your heart with me, I carry it in, Cummings compares love to the sky of the sky of a tree called life. The tree of life referring to the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. And once we hear the poem in this way, as part of that ancient stream of love poetry going back at least as far as the Song of Solomon, it becomes a window into how God loves us and how we're invited to love God. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. And whatever is done by only me is your doing, my darling. I fear no fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. I want no world, for beautiful you are my world, my true. And it's you are whatever a moon has always meant, and whatever a sun will always sing is you. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root, and the bud of the bud, and the sky of the sky of a tree called life, which grows higher than soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart.
So, according to this stream of thought, love is a form of care, but resting on that foundation is another layer. For love is also a form of ecstasy, of ardent, joyful intimacy and devotion, a kind of communion, a blurring of where one person ends and the other begins, a being together, so closely together as to be two in one. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. The poetry of Christmas puts it this way, the infant in the manger, the child of God, is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. God is in Mary's arms, just as she is in God's arms. And yet, there's still one more layer in this architecture of love. For that child, Emmanuel, grows up to be a rabbi, a teacher. And drawing on the books in the scriptural library, Jesus puts love at the center of his teaching. Quoting Deuteronomy, he echoes the Song of Solomon, You shall love your God with all your heart, soul, and might. This love is all in. It's ardent, joyful, intimate devotion. And then, quoting Leviticus, Jesus adds, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Another kind of communion, blurring the supposed boundary between self and neighbor. Now, this is typically understood as amounting to something like this. We're quite good at loving ourselves, and so Jesus is calling us to expand that circle of concern to include others as well, so that we love our neighbors just as well as we love ourselves, right? And that sounds reasonable enough at first. But just a moment's reflection, and it's pretty clear that for many of us, much of the time, and really for all of us, at least some of the time, we aren't particularly good at loving ourselves. I mean, we sometimes love ourselves too much, with entitlement or arrogance or self-absorption, and we sometimes love ourselves too little, because of shame or insecurity or holding ourselves to an impossibly high standard we would never impose on our friends. And so, in Jesus' teaching, that word as, in love your neighbor as yourself, it's a train that runs in both directions. On one hand, it's saying, yes, expand the circle of concern outward, love and respect others in the same way you love and respect yourself. And on the other hand, it's also saying, expand the circle of concern inward. Fill in that donut hole there in the middle. Love and respect yourself in the same way you love and respect others. Striking this balance, this both and of loving others as yourself and loving yourself as others, that's the love, the mature, wise love that Jesus has in mind. Love your neighbors as though they are you, and love yourself as though you are one of your neighbors. This must be so because in order for the love your neighbor's side of the equation to work, it must be based on a healthy, life-giving love for yourself, and vice versa. Here's how the poet Mary Oliver thinks about this balancing act, this choreography of love. In her poem, To Begin With the Sweet Grass, 
She puts it this way. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to, since somebody had to. That was many years ago. Since then, I have gone out from my confinements, though with difficulty. I mean, the ones that thought to rule my heart. I cast them out. I put them on the mush pile. They will become nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment somehow or another. And I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older, and cherishing what I have learned, I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know? Love yourself, then forget it, then love the world. Christmas happens because God so loves the world. How so? In this way. God loves the world with the tenderness and hospitality of a caregiver. But not only that. God loves the world with the enthusiasm, the ecstasy, the ardent, intimate devotion of a romantic, carrying our hearts in God's heart. But not only that. God loves the world with a mind-bending generosity, giving to the world, well, we say giving God's only child, but the Christian doctrine of the Trinity says that Jesus is God, so this is really God giving God. In other words, Christmas is a form of divine self-giving, but not self-giving in a way that negates or erases the self but rather the compassionate self-giving that Oliver invokes, loving yourself, and then, on that basis, loving the world. And then, we might add, on that basis, loving yourself, and so on, and so on, loving God and self and neighbor in a great circle of intimate communion, where even the supposed enemy, whoever that is, is welcomed in. That is love. That's what love looks like. Here's an example, an old story you might have heard before. There once was a man, respected in his community as a good and righteous man, who discovered that his fiancée was pregnant and he wasn't the father. We can only imagine what happened next. Perhaps he was heartbroken or indignant, or both. Perhaps he was embarrassed or afraid to face his neighbors. Or perhaps he knew from the outset that this was the Holy Spirit come near, and he was frightened by the nearness and by the prospect of raising God's child. Imagine that. But when an angel came to him in a dream with those gorgeous, unsettling words, do not be afraid. Joseph decided to stay and take care of Mary and the child, and to name the child, as the angel instructed, Emmanuel, which means God with us, and Jesus, which means God saves. 
The love Joseph embodies in this story for Mary and for Jesus is a kind of caregiving, and it is also a kind of ecstasy wrapped up in newlywed devotion and commitment, and it is a kind of giving, self-giving, that isn't self-negation, but rather the opposite, a clear and beautiful form of dignity and grace. And finally, Joseph's love is a kind of courage. Do not be afraid, the angel says, but surely Joseph was. That's what courage is, right? Not the absence of fear, but the presence of it, and doing the right thing, the loving thing, anyway. That's the love at the heart of Christmas. Caring, ecstatic, generous, and brave. And the poetry of Christmas is meant to remind us of it, to vividly dramatize it before our eyes, to bring us round again, another year later, another time around the sun, to that most important question of them all. What is love? How can we better understand it, practice it, live it out? And above all, how can we more openly, more consciously receive it? For as much as Christmas is an invitation to embody God's love, since we are minor poets created in the image of the great poet of heaven and earth, in the first place, the essence of Christmas is to receive God's love, as we would receive a gracious gift, caring, ecstatic, generous, and brave, a poesis for the ages, as the angels sing, good news of great joy for all people. God with us. The poetry of Christmas boiled down to one word. God's breathtaking yes to the world. The most important answer of them all. Strange New World is a SALT Project production written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton. Music is by Pablo J. Garman, Blue Dot Sessions, and Epidemic Sound. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find us. And if you want to go deeper, SALT has downloadable devotionals based on Mary Oliver's poetry, E.E. Cummings' poetry, and The Wonders of Birds. You can check out all three in the store at saltproject.org. This concludes our four-part series on the poetry of Christmas. We'll be back in the new year with a series for this season of Lent based on the work of the great painter Henri Matisse. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas, and see you next time.